0: first reading is from 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5 and 10 to 17. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that a messenger of God may be complete, equipped for every good work.
1: Jesus said, "'I have said these things to you in figures of speech,' I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: Please pray with me. Father, we pray to endure patiently the troubles of this life and the testing of our faith. May we not be overcome by the world, because your son Jesus has already overcome the world. so We pray this to the honor of his name. Amen. We're finish, finishing up today our Pentecost series that we've been looking at the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has taking, taken up the work that Jesus had started when he had risen from the dead that first Easter day that he was in the world in the work of the new creation to join heaven and earth together, starting in our lives and then throughout the world and throughout the ages. Now, we began a series back in May, focusing on chapters 14 to 16 in John. Now, in these three chapters, 14, 15, 16, these are referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse. They contain Jesus' last teaching materials to his disciples before he would be taken away to trial. Now, our gospel reading today that Taylor had read for us. That's the last portion of Jesus' farewell discourse, just before he prays that famous high priestly prayer in chapter 17. See now the hour of darkness has now come upon the Son of Man. Jesus was the only one who could feel the wind change from the coming storm. So his words to his disciples, they become more urgent. His speech becomes plain, less cryptic, less obscure as he gives his last instructions to his friends as his way of bidding them farewell. Goodbye, my friends. So if you have your bulletins and your Bibles at home, please turn with me to the last section of John 16. Now what would Jesus' last teaching be to his disciples at this point? In our gospel reading, we have at least four lessons. There are four Lessons, that is the plain speech of the Spirit, a lesson on prayer, a warning, and an encouragement. Again, the plain speech of the Spirit, a lesson on prayer, a warning, and an encouragement. But before we get into these four points, let's recap how we even got to this point ever since we've started in May. Remember back in chapter 13, after Jesus had washed his disciples' feet, after the Last Supper... Jesus dropped the bomb that he was going to leave them. He was going out of the world. In fact, his way of leaving the world was because one of his friends will betray him. And then he even said that all of you, in fact, will be abandoning me. Simon Peter, you're going to deny me three times. These were troubling news. And it was because that all the disciples, having just celebrated that, that, that Passover meal, excited to see Jesus inaugurate the kingdom, received these troubled news that prompted Jesus to give his farewell speech. This was like when, for the first time, a parent is about to leave their child off to childcare or at their grandparents' for their very first sleepover. So far, the child had grown up being with their parents all the time. But suddenly, for the first time, the ch- child will feel some time away, some distance from their parent. So naturally, the child becomes despondent. They become inconsolable. It will be a traumatic experience. For the child, it feels like an injustice, a terrible affliction. Of course, the child couldn't understand why their parents is suddenly leaving them. The child could not at that age comprehend their parents' absence. Their whole universe is wrapped up around their parent. They do not yet know that there's a bigger world. There's a bigger story, greater than just between them and their parents. This is, in a real way, what was happening to Jesus' friends. For them, their whole universe is wrapped up around Jesus, their Messiah, the one to overthrow Rome to inaugurate the kingdom in Israel. But there's so much more than that, as they would later find out. They could not yet comprehend that there's a bigger world, a bigger promise, a bigger story than just between them and Jesus. But they cannot yet know. It was not yet time. And Jesus knew this. He had just earlier said to his disciples, I have many more things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. this is the reason why Jesus spoke to his disciples in figures of speech. We read in verse 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech, that is, in parables. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So here is our first lesson about the plain speech of the Spirit. See, at this juncture... Jesus could only give hints about what he was all about in parables. Remember in chapter 14, there was the parable of him preparing rooms in his father's house. A parable about marriage preparation. In chapter 15, this is a parable of the vine and the branches. You will bear fruit, I am the vine. And in chapter 16, there is the parable. Your sadness will become joy, just like when a mother gives birth to a child and receives the child for the first time. These are parables that Jesus gives to his disciples in order to sustain them for the approaching trauma that they were about to suffer, of seeing their rabbi betrayed and crucified, and then for each one of them to experience their own personal denial and abandonment of their Messiah because they're just trying to save their own skin. These parables were Jesus' way of assuring them that though they will indeed fail, they will fail him, but they will be restored. They will be restored. Again, Jesus is like the parent consoling their child. He's, the child is miserable, is having a fit, incapable of understanding what this is happening. The parent can only do or say so much to their child at this point. That's just the way things are. In the same way, at this point, only Jesus can only do or say so much to his disciples And he can do that in figures of speech, in parables. But it would not be for much longer that Jesus would speak plainly to them about the Father. But that time could only be after Jesus had suffered his own trauma, suffered death, suffered betrayal, and rising from death. This looks forward to the advent of another guardian, the Holy Spirit, who would not speak on his own but the words of Jesus, just as Jesus did not speak on his own but the words of his Father. Later, after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to God, these same parables, these same figures of speech of this farewell discourse, they would shine in a different light. It's like the different view of the diamond that he had just turned. There's a brilliance to it. It's different color and spectrum that you see. See, in the light of the Spirit, these parables would be unpacked by the same apostles. By the Apostle Paul, by Simon Peter, by John in Revelation, in all of the New Testament letters. By the plain speech of the Spirit, the many rooms that Jesus prepared in his Father's house. That's talking about the marriage, the union of heaven and earth that John saw in Revelation. When the whole earth, as it were, becomes the house of God the new earth becoming the most holy place. God is at home in the church, the church is at home in God. By the plain speech of the Spirit, the fruit that Christians will bear as the branches of the vine, there's a ninefold cluster in that fruit. Paul described them in Galatians. By the plain speech of the Spirit, our sadness becoming joy as a mother after childbirth, that's the groaning, in fact, of all the universe for its own transformation, for its liberation from entropy and death, for the complete revealing of God's adoption of people. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 8. By the plain speech of the Spirit, Jesus would reveal to his disciples that the Messiah was to suffer, to die, to rise from death according to the Old Testament Scriptures, for the forgiveness of sins or the reconciliation of creation with its creator. The Holy Spirit is the plain speech of the Son concerning the Father. And Jesus continues to speak plainly to each one of us whenever we open the Bible, the words of Holy Scripture inspired and directed by the Holy Spirit through the authors of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit speaks plainly to us about Jesus Christ, and about the Father, and the whole sweep of his salvation through the ages. The second lesson Jesus gives his disciples this is a lesson on prayer. We read in verse 26. That day you will ask in my name, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your own behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you've loved me, and have believed that I came from God. Jesus here is reinforcing the reality of our free direct and immediate access to God as our own Father. Jesus is saying here that God admits us. He, he welcomes us. He em- embraces us like He would His only and one Son. Because Jesus here is dispelling this notion that God's original disposition towards us was cold and indignant, that He needed to be coaxed by Jesus somehow in order to love us, to give us a second chance, to take pity on us. As though it had to take Jesus, to take the cause of humanity, to a very indifferent father. No, no, we don't approach God like, like Queen Esther did you know, when she approached the Persian king Artaxerxes in that story. And only if the king extended his golden scepter to her would her life be spared, that she'd be granted an audience. No, we don't approach God like the male high priest on Aaron's line through the curtains of the temple only once a year carrying blood, investments, and ritual cleanliness. No, we approach God in the name of Jesus Christ as Father. We just heard from Jesus that he does not need to speak up or stand in on our behalf before the Father. I don't say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. God's love for us has never grown cold. Neither has it ever gone hotter because we believed in Jesus. The Father loves us just the same as he loves the Son. Now this isn't denying that Jesus is our mediator. But rather, Jesus' mediation is such that he's completely torn the temple curtain in two. He's bulldozed the barrier between heaven and earth, leaving no barrier or rubble between. He's reconciled earth and heaven at no creatures ever too far from God. We may now, we may now sprint. We may sprint and barge into the presence of God as our Father because the Father himself loves us. That's the lesson in prayer. As we move on, so then... Jesus gives a short recap to his disciples about his mission on earth. We read that in verse 28. Now, the biblical scholar, uh, Frederick Bruner, he calls this one verse, verse 28, he calls it the the children's creed, the children's creed. Because of how it's simple, it describes the journey of the Son of God for the salvation of, of humanity. In just one verse, Jesus recaps his whole three years on earth. He put it this way. I came from the Father. I've come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. It's like a check mark. It's like a V. Just one sentence. Jesus claims his origin of divinity. I came from the Father. His incarnation nativity. I come into the world. He's being crucified and resurrected. I'm leaving the world. And he looks forward to his ascension and reign. I am going to the Father. It's really the shortest creed. The, the very earliest creed coming from the mouth of Jesus, that he has recited and trusted to his disciples. Now, of course, again, like, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus had just told them. They only picked up what they had already acknowledged, that, yeah, Jesus, we, we know you came from God. We know you come from the Father. They've already confessed that earlier on in John's Gospel. That's why in verse 29, his disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly, not using figurative speech. You know that you know all things. You don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. That's as far as the disciples got with Jesus. That, yeah, Jesus, you are from heaven. And that was easy enough for them to acknowledge But they could not wrap their brains around that part that Jesus kept saying and saying and saying, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm going back to God. Again, they're like the child. They're like the child, yeah, we know where you've come from, you're with us, you're for us. But the child does not want their parent to leave. They cannot see any good reason for that or purpose why Jesus should and would leave them. So this response in 29 It's kind of like a mix of being in denial. They're holding on to their pride when they've often been scolded by Jesus for not understanding or having a lack of belief. It's their way of coping their grief. Of Jesus, what he's saying is probably true. So in verse 29, it's like the disciples are pretending like they finally understood Jesus. They're covering up their own confusion what he was saying. It's like they're saying... Okay, we're, we're tracking with you, Rabbi. We, we totally understand what you're saying. Like We're actually not liking what you're saying, but I think we want to move on here. When in fact, they couldn't believe what they're hearing, that Jesus was leaving to go back to God. Not surprisingly, Jesus again calls them out under pretense and self-assurance. So here is the third lesson. A warning from Jesus. In verse 31. Do you now believe? As in, do you really have faith that what, you've, what I've just said, you, you really believe that? Look, the hour is coming. Indeed, it's come that you will be scattered each to your own home. You're going to save your own hide. You're going to leave me alone, your best friend, your rabbi, the one who you claim to be Messiah. Now this is Jesus' warning to us. For us, who call ourselves Christians, we can be tempted to be self-assured that we've gotten this whole Christianity figured out, that we've gotten Jesus pegged down, that we know exactly who Jesus is, what he's about. Somehow we know a trick or two about Christianity in this life, and that we end up fooling ourselves, thinking that with just the right amount of doctrine, the right amount of living, we're well and good in this life. There is heaven to look forward to anyway. Jesus warned his disciples that sure you claim to believe but the time is coming when your doctrines your creeds, your beliefs will be tested and you will surely disperse each to save your own skin denying and abandoning me. Now as important as right doctrine is and as essential as right living is they do not serve us at all if we do not endure in the end, if we fail to be loyal and faithful to Jesus, wherever, whenever our faith is tested and tried. I want to bring up and I want us, I hope for us to re- recall the parable, the figure of speech that Jesus said about the seed and the sower. Will the seed of the gospel bear fruit in us, or will the intensity, the pain, the absurdity of life and its evils, will those things finally choke the roots of the gospel in your heart? Will the gospel produce a harvest in us or will the comfort, the ease, our wealth, our possessions, our successes, the pleasures of our careers in our retirement plans Finally, crowd over the roots and wither it away in the end. Are we faithful to Jesus in the pain and in the pleasure? Are we faithful to the call of the new creation of the entire cosmos in our lack and famine or in our plenty and harvest? What Jesus is guaranteeing for us as Christians is in verse 33. This is his guarantee. Jesus said in the world you'll have tribulation. The apostle Paul reiterated this in a provocative way in Philippians. He wrote this, for it has been granted to you, Christian, is it as we're, this is a gift to you from God. What is it? That for Christ's sake, you should not only believe in him, to have faith in Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. That's one gift, belief and suffering. That is crazy. It's been granted to you, Christian, to not only believe but to suffer for his sake. And then we just read, as Mike had read for us in First Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will face trouble. This is the guarantee. Having faith in Jesus Christ in this life is about trouble. It's not about looking for trouble. But trouble will always find us out because we are in this life and in this world. And it's broken. Our lives are broken. And because Christians are the first fruits of the new creation, we're actually, as children, learning to groan. We're learning to suffer. We're learning to actually voice the injustices of this life to God in prayer. It's the groaning of all creation for the transformation and liberation of all things. This is, in one sense, our vocation as Christians is one of groaning Groaning inwardly, silently without words, with shouts and screams to God. Groanings with others. Groaning for others in prayer. Groaning for justice. The liberation of everything. The reconciliation of all that's been estranged. For the forgiveness of crimes, of hatred, of bigotry, of rage and injustice, of sins. Groaning as a vocation of the new creation while we are in this life. But our groanings, the troubles of this life, in this world, they're never in vain. They're never futile. Here is the fourth and last lesson in verse 33. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart. Literally be of good cheer. Be of good courage. Don't flinch in the face of trouble. I've conquered the world, says Jesus. Now how has Jesus conquered the world? Not by sword. Not by military might. Not by fire and brimstones from heaven. Not by legions of celestial hosts of heaven coming down upon God's enemies. It's by the cross. By dying. By suffering the injustice of people by repaying evil for good, by declaring peace be with you to those who abandoned you, who delivered you to be abandoned, who denied you, who betrayed you, by saying, Father, forgive them when they persecute you, harm you, malign you, and destroy you. Only in the resurrected hands of Jesus does trouble and tribulation have their aim, have their target, have their appointed, directed course because if Jesus had stayed dead in the tomb, the Caesars of this world—they have the decree as to where trouble should go. The Pilots and the Herods of this world—they hold the steering wheel. The Caiaphas's and the Annas's of this world have their weight on the pedal, and all of them, along with us, will perish in the end like beasts of the field. But that's not true. Because Jesus is alive. He has conquered the Caesars, the Herods and the Pilates, the Caiaphas and the Anises. Jesus has overcome the devil and has overwhelmed death itself. Jesus holds trouble by the neck. He has sin and evil by their throats. And even though we don't know how or why Jesus is handling them the way it appears to us, He says, you can trust me. You can believe in me. And I will make all things right. Whatever is confusing, I will clarify. Whatever is bent, I will restore. I will make alive that what was shriveled and desiccated. I will bleed my blood and life into them and make them invulnerable. Take heart. Be of good cheer. Do not flinch in the face of trouble. Jesus has overcome the world. As children of God, we are exactly that, children. Children still growing, learning, maturing, groaning, stumbling along the way. We may not fully understand or comprehend why we groan, why it hurts sometimes, why it may hurt all the time, why we often feel as though Jesus had left us alone. But we're never alone. Just like that parent, he's always there. He's always there. The child is never alone. The Holy Spirit inside of us continues to speak plainly to us about the Father, about the words of Jesus in the Bible. The Spirit himself helps us, assists us to pray. When we don't have words to say, we come to God, say, Abba, Father, because he loves us. The Spirit also warns us that we are to endure this life, the testing of our faith, And then the Spirit encourages us. He reminds us. We often forget this, don't we? He reminds us Jesus has overcome the world. So take heart. Be of good cheer. Be of good courage. Do not flinch in the face of trouble. The Son of God has overcome this world. Amen.